Our next guest is joining us from Ottawa. He is Bruce Campbell, adjunct professor at York University in the Faculty of Environmental Studies and a senior fellow at the Ryerson University Center for Freedom of Expression. He's also the author of a piece that we picked up on uh, a few days ago at theconversation.com, the title of which caught our eye immediately. The throne speech must blaze a bold new path, including imposing a wealth tax. Here to talk about it now argue the case is Bruce Campbell on the line. Good morning, Bruce. Thank you for joining us. It's good to have you with us today. Good morning. It's great to be here. Well, let's talk a little bit about this. Uh, the Liberals are currently uh, uh, going into a bit of a retreat for a few days to organize the throne speech, which we know is now due to be uh, d- delivered on September 23rd or 24th. Uh, I, I'm hearing 23rd. Is that... Uh... I think it's the 23rd, yeah. Oh, okay. So now they have, of course, to take a few days to determine the contents of the throne speech. And Bruce, uh, this is where you come in, because they're talking, in addition to the wealth tax issue... That you want them to consider there are other groups and individuals lobbying for things like a guaranteed basic income universal pharmacare and of course yes. uh, the the um improvement the much needed improvement to the employment insurance uh, situation in order to continue the benefit flow to those who are impacted by covid uh with the serb of course wrapping up at the end of this month they have committed to a seamless, their word, transition to an improved EI. So they got a pretty full plate during this little retreat, Bruce. Yes, yes. And, uh, you know, I should say that, uh, especially when compared to the failed state state, uh, south of the border, uh, the imperfections in that support program since since March have uh, been pretty commendable. Uh, it'll remain to be seen. Uh, I expect uh, that that will continue. I guess the bigger question is is in the longer term. Um, and, you know, we have experienced probably the steepest decline, even steeper than uh, the depression of the 30s. The question is, uh, how long will it last? And I think the government measures have... Uh, tilted the balance, so to speak, uh, in favor of, of it not uh, getting mired for decades, mm-hmm. uh, like the, the Great Depression. But the, the question remains, once, uh, you know, once, once we start coming back, um, I think we'll be a long way uh, from, from full employment. And, and I don't know what the new normal would be, but we're a long way from that. And as you know, the Bank of Canada has been playing a central role yes. uh, in providing in providing the funds mm-hmm. for uh, the government to undertake uh, all of all of these uh, these supports. It's not coming out of tax money. Which do you see? And, and I, I'm 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 sure there are other items that are on that short list of consideration items for consideration uh, in terms of the throne speech and the degree of importance that will be placed on them. But from a Bruce Campbell perspective this morning, which of those issues that they're going to be kicking around at this retreat do you think, Bruce, is the most important or the most in need of the most urgent attention? Well, I mean, I think uh, other than what they're doing in the immediate uh, uh, era, which is to provide the support to prevent the depression getting uh, 
uh, any deeper. Right. Uh, the long-term challenges include fighting climate change, uh, uh, I think strengthening our, our health care system, whether for long-term care or for universal pharmacare. Um, I think increasing productivity uh, and removing uh, the barriers to participation uh, in the economy. Certainly uh, making housing uh, more affordable, all of those things and probably more. Uh, but I, really a relaunch or, or launch of a green and a, and a social economy. Uh, are are pretty central uh and you know it can uh undertake that um for uh and and the bank can finance that but uh, but i think at a certain point um, i mean this is this is down the road uh but there's always that 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 inflation prospect down the road yep. but that doesn't occur until uh the account the economy is at Full employment and demand is uh, is pushing up uh, uh, prices, uh, but but I think we have to plan for these days, and and that's why I've I've suggested uh, a number of tax reforms, uh, certainly on the on the very wealthy, uh, on the one percent or the zero point one percent, and I've suggested a number of measures that can be done in that regard, and um, you know closing tax loopholes, uh, mm-hmm. um, uh, blocking, uh, hiding uh, money in, in, in a myriad of tax havens, uh, increasing, making the tax system more progressive, especially at the high end. Uh, I think all of those things uh, uh, will probably be contemplated. Um, but as I think I said in my, in, in my commentary, um, with the Liberals, one, one never knows. I mean, uh, uh, the finance minister talked and wrote the book about the plutocracy. And in, in my big question is, will the plutocracy or the policy elite define the parameters of change uh, or whether uh, they will break through into another world like what happened uh, after World War II, for example? Mm-hmm. Well, it certainly sounds they the, based on this the rumors and uh, you know with small signals. And again, of course, with Freeland, with books that she's written, there's a path to identify here that's that's pretty clear. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about the wealth tax uh, as as a solution. I'm I'm still looking at the uh, the array of problems facing the government. And Bruce, you just brought up something that I I just I'm interested in your opinion on because there's a considerable amount of discussion about this particular subject. In fact, we had a group from Queen's University on this program yesterday morning talking about it, uh, and that's long-term care. One thing that the COVID pandemic has taught all of us from every corner of the country, Bruce, is to be uh, much more aware of the degree of care that seniors are receiving across Canada. And to uh, some of the revelations, as you know, uh, you're in Ottawa, you're sort of where all the information crisscrosses. Uh, some of the revelations have been just awful 
I mean, to the point we have to send in the army for crying out loud. So some some discussion is taking place across the land, Bruce, about the notion of long-term care uh, and the for-profit motive that drives a lot of it being replaced to some degree or another by government care. In other words, some kind of nationalization program. This is scary stuff for, uh, for for a lot of Canadians. But nonetheless, given the deficiencies that are so yeah. abundant in the long-term care solution, you have to look at alternatives. And this uh, government takeover is being widely discussed. What do you make of all of that? That's a that's an enormous expense. Well, well uh, as you know... Um the vast majority, uh, the large majority of deaths have been in long-term care facilities. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is information to indicate, although it's not conclusive, and I, I, I don't want to comment on that, but what, from what I can see, um, a disproportionate amount have, been, have occurred in, in for-profit facilities uh, with part-time workers earning l- low incomes and having to work at at multiple uh, at multiple long-term care homes at the same time, and Correct. they were a major force for for transmission. So I think there's a difference uh, between long-term and not-for-profit, and then municipal or or provincial uh, uh, long-term care homes, and. Uh, and there, there definitely has to be um, a revolutionary change in in how they're funded mm-hmm. and how they're regulated. I was just going to uh, say, I know in 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 Ontario, for example, I mean they 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 basically stop regulating mm-hmm. uh, long term care homes and stop going in and uh, you know asking for demanding um, evidence of 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 uh, proper care and sufficient. Uh, staff and so forth, um, and so they'll have to. Re- I think have to review the whole thing. And since uh, the provinces have to be very much involved in this, because just like pharmacare, uh, these are federal provincial uh, partnerships. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, Bruce, the the idea though that uh, uh, that standardization or, or back to the regulation point, which I think is a very good one to take, uh, regardless of the funding point. There is a role for government to be more uh, in a more supervisory capacity, again, with respect to minimum standards being rigidly adhered to uh, uh, by the, these uh, care providers, regardless of where they are in the country. I totally agree. So that's that's a good first step, and that doesn't cost much in terms of an investment. Uh, you're not buying uh, Rivera or, or, or you know a, a major yeah. chain or anything like. You're just simply saying, okay, everyone in the business from now. And of course, we've learned here in BC, we now have regulations, Bruce, in which yeah. uh, the long-term care worker is only allowed to work at one facility. They're not allowed to work two days here and two days there. You know, to cobble together a reasonable income, which is what they had to do. So now we're seeing improved wages and reductions in in the uh, movement of workers from one facility to the other. So all of this is starting to improve. Right now we're on the line with Bruce Campbell in Ottawa. Professor Campbell is uh, with the Faculty of Environmental Studies at York University and wrote a piece uh, for theconversation.com about the throne speech, which is coming up in a couple of weeks or less. The throne speech must blaze a bold new path, including imposing a wealth tax. 
And Bruce, you referred to uh, Christian Freeland, the finance minister, the new finance minister, and uh, something that she's written, and you quote her in your article in the conversation. So let me do that. It's such a short quote. Rising income inequality and a hollowed-out middle class are the dominant social and political challenge facing our generation. That's the quote from Christopher Freeland uh, in, in, a, in a recent book. So you ask, will they follow through on these promises, which include addressing inequality, taking action on the climate emergency, and rebuilding the economy? You ask, will they follow through on these pr- promises, or will they appease the people who derive their power from wealth or plutocrats as the finance minister has already called them, and ultimately acquiesce to the parameters they're set on what kind of change is acceptable. Uh, this is pretty radical stuff for the Liberal Party of Canada, though, Bruce. you got to at least give them that, in that this prime minister and his uh, vision for the country is decidedly left of where the Liberal Party usually is, and so it's going to be difficult to digest for some members, don't you think? Uh, I think so, and I think there's going to be a lot of pressure uh, on on uh, on the cabinet, on the leadership, on the political leadership, and of course they are part of the policy uh, elite. So yes, I think I think the magnitude of what we're facing, you know, pandemics, we're facing a pandemic which we don't know how long it will last. True, for. Mm-hmm. we've got a climate emergency on our hands, and we've got a a crisis of of inequality. Um, and so, the, you know, it's whether they will rise to the occasion. Um, and I, you know, go back to World War II in the years before World War II, uh, when south of the border FDR and in Canada, uh, um, Mackenzie King, Mackenzie King, yeah. uh, he was kind of following along, but he had some very, very enlightened um, uh, government officials who actually studied under John Maynard Keynes, uh, and they were preparing for a war. And no one asked uh, when they're preparing for a war, you know, are we going to have enough money? Should we worry about the deficit and so forth? Uh, and and they and they uh, you know they plowed through uh, the war and they came out of it with about 130 percent debt GDP ratio. But no one complained. And we're now at about we've we've gone up to about 50 percent, and we'll probably be that or 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 more uh, last year. There are there are two ways you can or three ways you can do this. You can you can raise taxes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can you can do what what happened with the Martin uh, finance minister in the mid nineties. You could cut programs like healthcare transfers and employment insurance and so forth, or you can print money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the government, uh, the Bank of Canada, has been very conservative in that regard until very recently, and and now we're seeing. All the spigots open. The Bank of Canada uh, is uh, is lending about $5 billion uh, a week to, to the federal government, and it's also got a fund for the provincial governments as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's buying their bonds and basically at no interest rates. But this is this is because we have a crisis. And, and so going forward, uh, then the question becomes, especially if there's a threat of inflation, uh, do we cut programs? Do we bring back austerity? Or do we make the tax system fair? Do we reduce inequality? Because, you know, inequality is, it's now, income and wealth inequality exceeds what it was uh, in, in the 20s. And, um, you know, and there could be, I mean, it, it brought about that growing inequality, brought 
all kinds of political disruption uh, in the 30s, and we know the outcome of some of those. Um, and so we're, we're, in a, we're in a time where these, these different crises are coming together and a forward-looking government that can, um, you know, that can take, um, you know, real steps uh, and not uh, just kind of placate. Uh, and, you know, we'll get a sense of it from the throne speech. I guess the rubber will really hit the road when there's a fiscal update or a budget, and that's previewed, I think it's projected for either October or November. But we should get some real hints uh, about the direction uh, in the phone speech. And, of course, as you know, uh, it's a minority government, and, uh, and, and we'll see, uh, you know, where, how the how the opposition parties react to that. Indeed. Uh, and, of course, you did mention Paul Martin, Bruce. And uh, it'd be, yes, this, this is the same liberal party. And there is, is within this party, there is still a faction that saw the remedy that Paul Martin, uh, the, with the cuts to health care that you, that you mentioned, his remedy back in the 90s was satisfactory uh, to some. And some of those yep. people are still card-carrying members and active uh, members of the government. Uh, so uh, yep. this, is, this is not going, this is going to be a hard sell. And I'm curious, about the timing because the liberals have their national convention coming up in november in ottawa from the 12th to the 15th presumably in ottawa bruce although it could be one of those virtual deals we're not sure yet and they aren't either but why would they have they're going to have a throne speech coming up in a couple of weeks and they're going to pitch all of these ideas to canadians uh, after having uh, sort of worked through as many of they as they could in caucus and yet they won't have a debate on these issues as to the uh uh, the degree that they're going to be supported by the party until their convention in November. Aren't they kind of putting the cart ahead of the horse? Put going to the uh, going to uh, to the uh, to Parliament and ultimately the voters before they've even internally agreed on what the platform is going to be going forward. Yeah, well, don't forget the throne speech. Uh, you know, could fall if there's a vote of no confidence. True. So yeah. Could, uh, that, that that could be well before. Before the convention, uh, there's also uh, the, um, the the UN uh, uh, conference on climate change. Uh, it's in Europe somewhere. I forget. Uh, but but Trudeau has committed to exceeding his climate change targets of I think they're thirty percent. He's already over them, but he's he's committed to ex- to exceeding them, and he's he's committed to putting very concrete five-year targets on those. Mm-hmm, saw uh, that, yeah. and that will, uh, so that's probably after uh, the Liberal Convention. You would think that that would be made public uh, before, but, but you're right. This is a, this is a, uh, um, a critical period these months uh, in, terms of, uh, in terms of policy moving forward. I have to say, and especially when you compare it with, uh, with our neighbors to the south, uh, they've done a commendable job of, uh, of, of, of dealing with the pandemic thus far and the economic, thus far and the economic fallout for people and for businesses, uh, thus far. Uh, that's a positive sign. We don't know how long it will, it will continue. And then as, as we start to ease what will be the longer term plan or strategy, and that will be, that will be something we'll all be watching carefully and, and trying to, uh, trying to speak out about. That's one of the reasons I wrote this piece. 
Indeed, and the piece that our guest is referring to is entitled The Throne Speech Must Blaze a Bold New Path, including imposing a wealth tax. Our guest is Bruce Campbell, who is uh, with uh, York University at the Faculty of Environmental Studies, also a senior fellow at the Ryerson University Center for Free Expression. Bruce Campbell, thanks for this. Uh, Once they figure out what they're going to do and actually plot a course, uh, we must get together and uh, get your thoughts on, on what they're actually going to do instead of what they might do. That should be an interesting conversation. I thank you for this one today. Happy to come back, Sterling. Nice to talk with you. Good to have you with us. Bruce Campbell from York University. Likewise, I hope your air quality is a little better than ours too, Bruce. A little better. Indeed. Uh It's time to move on and talk to our next guest who's joining us from Toronto. Our next guest is an economist. In fact, he is the chief economist of the Mortgage Professionals of Canada, a national industry association which represents more than 11,000 individuals and 1,000 companies. He is Will Dunning and uh, on the line from Toronto to talk to us this morning about the stress test. Mr. Dunning, Will, good morning, sir. Welcome to the program. Well, good morning to you as well. Well, tell us a little bit about the stress test. Let's identify what we're talking about because you need to, you think it needs to be tweaked. But let's examine the stress test for what it is as a basic device, and then we'll talk about the finessing that you would like to see done to it. Well, the, the idea of doing stress testing is, is really sound. I, I mean, it's not just what you can afford to pay today. You, uh, Somebody borrowing a mortgage and somebody lending a mortgage, everybody has an interest in making sure that the, the borrower can afford those payments over a long period of time. Right. So the the idea of a stress test is uh, you've got initial conditions. What are What's a scenario for some conditions that might occur when you renew your mortgage, which is usually in five years? Mm-hmm. So what do you want to assume about what the interest rate will be? That's what the stress test does. It makes an assumption that the interest rate is going to be much higher in five years test you for t- today on whether or not you'll be able to afford that payment today even though the events won't happen for five years and it's un- uncertain whether those events will happen mm-hmm. so uh you know uh, to test at 4.79 percent today when you can actually borrow at less than two percent it's it's a bit of a stretch to take that as an initial analysis position so the the original thought though will was when they created the stress test and this is still a relatively recent invention the stress test uh the idea was you would take today's interest rate and then you would add two percent on top of that and that would be the rate that the borrower would have to qualify for that would anticipate at least a two percent interest interest rates increasing from the time you take your mortgage until the time it renews is that basically it well that's basically it although the the two plus rule has been replaced by by taking an interest rate uh, of what lenders are, are quoting as, as their posted rates. So the posted rate is something they use for administrative purposes. I, I don't think anybody is assuming that the interest rates are actually going to rise to 4.79%. I, I mean, the, as I was saying, the lenders are using this because they have an administrative reason to create these rates. So, I, you know, the, the policy, yes, should be making some assumption about mm-hmm. what interest rates might be in five years, but the, the, the posted rate at 4.79 is not 
the correct interest rate to use today. Well, is it also sure. is it also possible that because of recent statements by Tiff Macklem, the governor of the Bank of Canada, with respect to interest rates, and they're saying the same thing basically in the states, but let's keep the ball north of, of the 49th here. Uh, the, gov- the Bank of Canada seems, and I, I may be wrong, but seems to have indicated recently that they are going to be sitting on historically low interest rates for as long as possible. They say as long as necessary, but as long as possible in order to turn this economy around. And so one um, derives from a statement like that, that interest rates are going to be artificially held low for, for the foreseeable future. Well, exactly. And, you know, I think this would be a really good time for the policymakers in the government to say, here's what we think is a reasonable scenario for interest rates five years from now, and these are the interest rates we should be using this test. Unfortunately, that, that discussion has not yet happened. Uh, there was a start on the discussion back in the winter, but of course, uh, everything got upset during March. Sure. And, and so the policy changes that might have happened got put on hold. Well, now, Will, they're going to, they're, they're certainly, uh, we've, we've seen a new finance minister since all of this came down in March. Uh, we've seen uh, a, a, an enormous amount of public debt accumulated in a relatively, uh, in an unbelievably short period of time, given the amount of money. And now we see the government of Canada in, retre- in, in going into a retreat to in order to put together a new platform to take to the people uh, and certainly present as a throne speech in a couple of weeks. And they're talking about things like uh, guaranteed basic income, uh, pharmacare, green initiatives, left, right and center, long-term care, uh, employment insurance. I think that, do you think that the stress test and consideration for homeowners and would-be homeowners will be part of that discussion as they figure out the new uh, approach to take to the voters? Well, I don't know what, what they're going to say about that at all. But, you know, I think there are a couple of places we could go with this discussion. One is to talk about uh, risks in the housing market. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, people don't buy houses frivolously. I'm, you know, people work very hard at buying homes. It's, it's a, a very careful thought process that a very large majority of people go through to figure out what I can afford today and, and to look at their personal risks. So, um, you, you know, everybody in, in the, the borrowing and buying system has an interest in being careful. Uh, so that people sometimes regret the decisions they've made. Uh, something we've, we've done in our consumer surveys is ask, um, how comfortable are you with the decision to buy the property you have? And, mm-hmm. and 90% say, yeah, I, I made a good decision. Um, 7 or 8% say, well, I wish I'd bought a different house. There are only 2% who say, I, I wish I hadn't bought a house at all. Um, and I, you know, I think that's reflective that home buying is a complicated process that people don't enter into lightly. Absolutely. So, so I, you know, I, I, I would like to see the government have a little more faith in, in people's ability to make good decisions than they're currently demonstrating right now with a test that is really a, an impediment to people who are very good candidates to be buying homes and we've got a policy that's saying uh, we don't know whether or not you're going to be a good candidate to pay an interest rate that's never going to happen five years from now. You know, I, it's really past time to start having a discussion about what are reasonable expectations. Well, isn't it also possible, though, that some of the lenders are taking a look with very vivid memories, are looking back to 08 and 09 and the mortgage crisis in the United States with the Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae or whatever that uh, combo was, in which 
well, serious numbers of people who really shouldn't have received mortgages got them, ended up in deep financial trouble, in negative equity, and the market went into the tank. So given those memories, distant though they may now be, that is still coloring the judgments and attitudes of some of the lenders, don't you think? No, I don't think so. I, I think uh, Canadian lenders and Canadian borrowers know that we've got a very different system. We don't have people borrowing mortgages based on no incomes. You know, that was the issue in the States. Yes. People were given mortgages that it's not just they couldn't afford them in the future. They couldn't actually afford the mortgage they were getting at the day they took the mortgage. Mm-hmm. The, you know, they had an artificially low interest rate. They were misstating incomes. And it just took a very small bump in personal circumstances to cause a catastrophe in the States. We don't have that situation in Canada. We We've got a pretty resilient system here. Well, a lot of Canadians need to hear that, especially early on a Sunday morning, Mr. Dunning, because we're not at all sure. Some, it's a big picture kind of thing. And uh, when we step back and look at our big picture, sometimes we don't get to see it all, let alone understand what it's trying to tell us. And so our system is just flat out different from theirs. And you're saying that that type of crisis that occurred 10 years ago in the States, we're just not set up for something like that to happen in Canada. You know, you can have a crisis. Um, what we've learned from our history in Canada is that what causes problems for, for mortgage holders is a change in their employment situation. Mm-hmm. If your employment situation is stable, your interest rate changes, it's you know almost always possible to find some kind of solution to change in the payment. Where we have problems that are hard to fix is where there's a loss of income. So, um, and, and the stress test isn't at all concerned about income. Sure. Or, or employment stability. Um, you know, I think there's a very good argument can be made that maybe the stress test is testing the wrong thing. It, it should be more of a test of what's your income, what's likely to happen to your income, what's likely to happen to your employment situation. Those are what are really going to matter for people's ability to make the future mortgage payment. Our guest is Will Dunning, the uh, Chief Economist with Mortgage Professionals Canada. Mr. Dunning wrote a report in March of this year uh, entitled The Annual State of the Residential Mortgage Market in Canada for the Year-End 2019. And uh, at that time, uh, Will, uh, the bank rate was about uh, 5.19%. Lenders were offering rates uh, ranging from 25 to 2.85%. And you concluded about 20% of potential home buyers would not qualify at that time under those conditions. And then, of course, the report comes out, and so does COVID-19. Everything changes, including interest rates, which have gone down uh, since then. And what other conditions, if any, have changed since you wrote that report and it came out just before lockdown? Well, everything's changed. Yeah, of um, course. Something about I'm, I'm watching and trying to understand is how much uh, housing activity fell during April and May and then recovered very strongly during June, July, into August, and even it looks so far like into September. Mm-hmm. If, if you look at, at total activity during the same that that period from April to the present, we're still down year over year. But, you know, what we're seeing in the last few months is an enormous rebound that's causing sales levels to be at all-time record levels. We're, we're going to be seeing from the Canadian Real Estate Association probably on Tuesday a report that's going to show that activity is somewhere on maybe 40% higher than the previous all-time record for mm-hmm. the month of August. But again, if you look at the yet, you know, a period of five months or six months, the total activity is actually still down a little bit compared to a normal level. So we're seeing a, a huge hit to the housing market and then a huge rebound. And 
I'm personally not sure what we conclude about what's going to happen next in the housing market. Well, no kidding. As, you know, everything is changing every day. Well, especially, well, I was, I was interested in your thoughts and comments, please, on this whole notion of mortgage deferrals, because now many Canadians, they say up to 800,000 Canadian mortgage holders have opted uh, to defer their mortgage payments for up to six months during this crisis. In many cases, the obvious reason being someone had lost their job. Job. You were talking about loss of employment earlier uh, or reduced wages and circumstances, that kind of thing. Uh, let's talk about that going forward, though, Will. What do you see? Well, you know, the, the job losses have been quite concentrated in uh, lower income levels, you know, the, the service industries and younger age groups. The people who are typically homeowners have seen some reductions in their employment situations, but but most are in fairly stable situations. Mm-hmm. You know, the way you're doing your work has changed a lot. But the amount of income you're receiving, the amount of effort you're putting into your job hasn't really changed a whole lot for a very large percentage of homeowners. Now, there, there was so much uncertainty in the spring that uh, I, I think an awful lot of uh, people with mortgages decided, I don't know what's going to happen in my situation. It's a cautious thing to do to take this mortgage deferral just to preserve my options for the future, depending on how this works out. Uh, we're seeing a lot of those people with deferrals getting a much stronger sense of stability in the lives, and, and they're rolling out of their mortgage deferrals. Okay, successfully. Now, uh, yeah, successfully. Now, it remains to, see, to be seen when those deferrals really do end, for sure, in uh, October, November, December, whenever that is for those individuals, how many people will be in difficult situations. You know, it might be a small number, it might be a very large number. We don't have numbers now that will help us understand the risks in that situation. I'd love to see the government and the banks start coming out with really good analysis of what are the risks for the end of the mortgage deferral program. So we, as, uh, as, as the government and we as citizens can start talking, what do we do next policy-wise? Sure. What's the wise thing to do in the situation that, that no, we don't know for sure it's going to develop? that might develop over the next half year. What are the options on the, that we should be looking at today to deal with situations that are going to be affecting some people, but not many, but not through a fault of their own, but as a result of something that, you know, they could not reasonably have expected when they bought their home and took their mortgage. Right. So are, is this going to affect prices? You were talking about a forthcoming, uh, in a couple of days, uh, real estate report nationally. And of course, we didn't have a spring this year in terms of sales. And you're the veteran a real estate mortgage guy here. You know that spring is the peak of the real estate year. We didn't have that a spring this year. So a lot of pent up demand uh, has resulted, as you say, in some pretty amazing numbers over the past couple of months. Can that sustain, Will? I don't know. I really don't know. Uh, I mean, we might also be seeing some people buying, let's call it preemptively. Mm-hmm. I don't know what situations, you know, as, as a consumer, I don't know what the situation might be a few months from now. I, I know right now uh, this is a good time for me to buy a home. Interest rates are low, my employment stable. Maybe I'm better off buying a home now than waiting until until the fall. Uh, maybe happening. We don't know. So, what I'm trying to say is I'm really trying to avoid doing any forecasting right now. It's, right. You know, supposed to be my bread and butter is forecasting. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't I don't see how you can forecast in this environment when there are so many things that all I can do is make assumptions about what might happen. I don't have a reasonable basis for saying what will happen in in December or January. Right. And to so, a- you know, I'm we've seen lots of forecasts. You know, we saw from CMHC a forecast that says house prices in Canada could fall by nine to eighteen percent by next spring. That's a possibility. There are many other possibilities and there are many different forecasts out there. 
so what I say in response to forecasts is, let's not talk about a forecast. Let's talk about what kind of assumptions we can be making and what we should be doing in response to those assumptions we might make. So if you want to assume that the end of deferrals is going to cause a catastrophe in the Canadian housing market, well, what's interesting is to have the discussion. So what are we going to do about that? And I, I don't see enough discussion of that kind of discussion. What should we be doing about things that might happen? Interesting stuff. Well, Dunning, thank you for this this morning. It's great to meet you. Uh, I very much appreciate your expertise and your thoughtful contributions to the show today. And as they finally do come up with some policy, perhaps we can discuss what they what they resolve and where that might take us when we finally see some evidence. Thanks for this Let's today. Do that. Okay, bye-bye. There's Will Dunning, a Chief Economist for the Mortgage Professionals of Canada, on the line from Toronto. It is a pleasure to welcome Sherry Wong back to our program. Sherry is the Executive Director of Alliance Canada Hong Kong. And uh, the story that says, we know where your parents live. Hong Kong activists say Canadian police are helpless against threats. Sherry Wong uh, joining us this morning. Uh, Good morning and welcome back, Sherry. It's great to have you back with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So talk to us a little bit. Now, there's a specific example in the news story that uh, brought you to our attention again, Sherry, that talks about you coming to Vancouver. And this is fairly recent. This is uh, earlier this year. Uh, You were here to participate in uh, an Alliance Canada Hong Kong uh, demonstration. And uh, tell us a story about what happened to you while you were here in Vancouver more recently. Yeah, so in January 2020, we launched uh, Alliance, the Alliance. So uh, I was in Vancouver for the launch event. Mm-hmm. And I think about two days after we launched the Alliance was when I got this threatening phone call to my hotel room. Uh, out of precaution, I actually booked it under my friend's name already. But they somehow found where I was living, found out my room number, and kept repeating that we're coming to get you. We're coming to get you. Um, and I called the Vancouver police. The only thing I knew what to do at that moment was to seek help. Sure. And what they said was that, you know, there's nothing we can do about it. You know, they didn't, they didn't come to you. They didn't get you. So you're fine. It's just a phone call. Yeah. And, and of course, this is the era of social media and to receive death threats, which you have, is, is regrettably a f- fairly commonplace. So police are constantly uh, being phoned and contacted by individuals who have been threatened. And because no crime has occurred beyond the threat, they can't really do much, can they? Not much they can do. And that's a widespread issue that is not only activists are facing, but general Canadians. We've all received um, inappropriate messages on social media from random people. And it's Uh, Definitely an issue to be addressed. But what I'm worried about is that the incident that happened to me is a widespread issue for Chinese dissidents here in Canada. And and I suppose, uh, and of course, we had a a parliamentary committee that was studying the Canadian relationship with China, which, of course, was shut down when Parliament was prorogued. We have a government in Ottawa that uh, whose leader, uh, frankly, quote, admires China's basic uh, dictatorship, 
close quote, uh, who we, uh, there's just, as, as you and I have pointed out on this program in the past, it's difficult to stand up to someone when you're constantly bowing down to them. And we're still doing a lot of bowing and not a lot of standing up. And in between all of that are people like you who are legitimately and quite legally opposed to some policies of, of Beijing as directed towards Hong Kong. And because you are public with your disapproval, well, then the authorities in in China see you as the enemy and take action against you and other activists like you that Canadian cops can't do anything about, Sherry. That's a heck of a problem. I'm worried uh, because it's not only these harassment campaigns, you know. The Chinese Communist Party has very meticulously systemically infiltrated our society, uh, in our academic institutions, in uh, our political institutions, in our media organizations, especially in ethnic media. And the, the, the simple solution is that we need to bring these issues to the light. Right. They are trying so hard to hide this from the public because what we don't know won't worry us. But the more we speak out about it, the more scared they are. And I, I think Ottawa has a very simple solution. We need a foreign transparency scheme that you know most other countries have. The U.S. has one, Australia has one, Taiwan has one, and it's just a matter of political will to stand up and say, we will protect our citizens, not only those who are being harassed by the Chinese Communist Party, but also by other foreign hostile states. We do know that um, other countries are also carrying out these kind of harassment and intimidation campaigns here. So we need to stand up and say Canada will stand up for our own constitutional rights. Well, you know, you mentioned Australia and we we all all Canadians and there is an 80 plus percent uh, feeling amongst all Canadians that we simply are not doing a very good job at all of standing up to China. So let's talk a a little bit very quickly, Sherry, about Australia, because China is really ticked at Australia. They're really quite upset because Australia has taken a firm position. Don't mess with our people. What have they done specifically that made has made China so angry? Uh, like I said, they proposed a uh, foreign transparency legislative um, agenda, which basically reveals uh, who is involved and the people who are involved in funding these operations overseas. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also they have taken a stronger stance. Uh, we have seen Australia, actually Canada has done the same, uh, you know, releasing multilateral statements to condemn the issues happening in Canada and this uh, in China. In and Hong this Kong, is, right. Yeah, <clears throat> this is the start of something. Because no one nation can stand up against China. Sure. China is a global superpower. We're, we're not. Uh, we are a middle power. And what we have is a lot of allies. And the more we talk to our allies, the more we uh, collaborate, whether it is you know, a, another statement or concrete actions, whether it, it may be McNiskey sanction, it may be uh, asylum for those who are seeking a safe haven, 
you know, there are a lot of options out there. And as long as we work with our friends and allies who also stand up for democracy and human rights, we'll be fine. Uh, and yet what we've done recently instead is sign a contract with a Chinese security company so that every Canadian embassy and consulate on the planet will now be uh, a, a, a tick, a tricked out with uh, security equipment made in China, which means, of course, that every person who visits any Canadian mission anywhere in the world will be recognized uh, by Beijing, because you think they're going to sell us equipment to put in our embassies and consulates and missions around the world that doesn't include spyware? You're nuts. You're out of your flipping mind. Yeah, and this is exactly why, you know, the Canada-China Committee was so important. Uh, we have already, you know, gone through a lot of topics that uh, the CCP has malicious intent and are carrying out here in Canada, whether harassment campaigns, infiltration, um, to the point of dictating what Canadian uh, embassies are going to be using as mm-hmm. security equipment. Yeah, yeah. This is why we need this comprehensive study on Canada-China relations. Yep. Because it's no longer a trade issue. It's no longer just a human rights issue. It is a Canada issue. How will Canada survive uh, under the CCP's global authoritarian regime? They have the military power. They have the technology. Uh, and we, frankly, don't talk about it enough and don't think about it enough in our policy decisions or in, you know, any decision that we're making. Sherry, uh, you are the executive director of Alliance Canada Hong Kong. Is there, uh, where do people go to learn more about you, to connect with you, to learn about activities and how they can participate and and show support? Yeah, uh, everyone should check out our website. It is alliancecanadahk.com, all in one word. Uh, we also have a variety, uh, a widespread um, community partners across Canada, which is also listed on our website. Mm-hmm. So uh, no matter where you are in Canada, you should join up with one of our local groups, go out to local actions, email your MPs, because we need this Canada-China committee back and we need them to continue their study. Uh, we also, you know, uh, need more people to know about these issues. So if you have a chance to Google about what's happening in Hong Kong, Google what's happening about uh, the CCP's infiltration in Canada. That's really important as well. All right. So it's AllianceCanadaHK.com. That's a great place to start. Yes. Sherry, thanks for this. Good to talk to you again. Stay safe, please. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. Sherry Wong, Executive Director, AllianceCanadaHK.com. Check it out. It's This is insidious stuff, and it goes on every day, and our government simply chooses to ignore. Not healthy. It's a pleasure to welcome our next guest back to the program. Dana Hayes is Managing Editor at the Portland Tribune and is on the line from Portland, Oregon. Dana, welcome back. Good morning. Good morning, Sterling. How are you guys doing up there? Well, we're doing okay. Apparently, we are we are uh, the second worst air quality city on the planet this morning. The only city being in tougher shape breathing-wise, Dana, is yours, Portland. Tell us what it's like there this morning. Well, for those who haven't been down here, Portland is a, just a gorgeous city. We're braced by Mount St. Helens and, and, and Mount Hood. We've got two beautiful rivers, a dozen beautiful um, art 
um, bridges. And I say all that so that people understand when I tell your listeners that it looks like Ray Bradbury's Martian Chronicles out here mm-hmm. right now, mm-hmm. that they get the full sense of what I mean. Our air quality is worse than Mexico City. It's worse than Lahore, Pakistan. It's worse than Delhi, India. It's, uh, it is a thallow and pestilent congregation of vapors down here, man. Oh, believe you, Dana. So tell us now about uh, proximity to the big city. Now we're hearing uh, communities like Malala, which is only 45 minutes away, being evacuated. There's 9,000 people there. That's not far away from town. So tell us about uh, the progress of the fires and its effect on individuals and communities, Dana, please. Well, the bad news is that the fire got right up to and into the metropolitan Portland area. We have a three-county area, uh, and uh, the areas that are to the southwest of Portland, in what we call Clackamas County, they were hit really, really hard. There was a 58-kilometer-long fire line on Thursday and Friday that stretched from the state capital all the way north right up into the Portland metropolitan area. Mm. Uh, Towns like Estacada, Molala, Colton, Scotts Mills, Lyons, they were all in the midst of it. Then uh, the... um, that was on like Thursday and Friday. Then what happened was that strong east wind stopped. And on Saturday, they said the, the, the fires stopped moving forward. It actually jumped the line into the town of Estacada where they had actual urban firefighting. But on those other towns I mentioned, it stopped within a couple of kilometers of actually hitting the towns. And the towns, for the most part, are, have been saved. Having said all that, uh, it, it's been really, really bad. We have uh, dense smoke all over the area still. Uh, we're going to be in a dense advisory until Sunday for most of our communities. And we've got um, a million acres has been burned in Oregon. I believe you. Dana, so this has been, last time you and I talked, it had to do everything uh, about the civil unrest and the protests and the mm-hmm. uh, the uh, um, uh, unbadged uh, uh, agents of the of the president uh, mixing in with the crowd and all of that kind of stuff. What has this natural disaster done to that uh, fairly strident protest movement? It was concentrated in a, a small area in downtown Portland, but it's received massive coverage. Is that still going on, or is that just uh, set aside uh, because of this obvious uh, natural emergency? It, it, we have not had any protests for the last three or four nights, and that was the first. We went to 104 straight nights with them. I believe it was 104. Yeah, uh, but but the um, the air quality here is such that even uh, given that these people have been wading into tear gas uh, night after night after night, even they don't want to come out in this this muck that we've got. The air is uh, kind of a yellowish tinge to it. At some places, the sun looks like a crimson balls. Other places, like here in downtown Portland, the sun never appears at all. Mm-hmm. So oddly enough, the, the bad, bad, bad smoke has stopped the protests. Interesting stuff. Yeah, even here at uh, noon or one o'clock yesterday afternoon, Dana, I was able to uh, look directly at the sun. You, you, you're not supposed to, and you don't do it for very long, but the fact that you can do it at all uh, suggests how dense the the that the orangey uh, smoky haze is. I have another question for you this morning, my friend, and this is a story that you wrote up a couple of days ago on the city of Portland or Portland City Council banning facial recognition technology. In the middle of all of this stuff uh, comes this unanimous initiative to ban facial recognition technology. Dana, what on earth is that about? 
we we found it a little bit ironic. This is something that the city of Portland has been talking about really for a long time. This this conversation goes back years, and they finally get around to voting to ban facial recognition at a time when everybody's wearing masks. Now, exactly. I enjoy irony as much as the next yeah. guy, but that one I thought was pretty funny. Um, basically, what it is is there is some technology out there that has been there's fear that it can be misused. That is, by randomly doing facial recognition to figure out where everybody is and to monitor everybody's presence. And it's one of the things that a lot of folks, the technology exists, it doesn't want to be overused and it doesn't want to be misused to monitor your your citizens for no reason other than that you can. So the city of Portland banned its use by the city and it banned its use by um, businesses in the, in the area too. So it's one of the most sweeping bans that we've seen in the nation. It's designed to protect privacy and it is more prophylactic than it is practical. It's probable that nobody's using it quite to the degree that everybody fears yet. Right. But the city council doesn't want us to get there. Well, it's interesting because in, in your article, you say a private business could not have a camera equipped with the technology capturing people on a public sidewalk. And yet, you know, because you're a news guy, that, you know, if there's a fight outside a, a pub after closing hours on a Saturday night, the first thing the cops do when they show up is they go around to the businesses and say, anybody got any video footage of this so we can sort of put the people pieces back together. Would that video footage now be banned in Portland? No, not at all. That would be fine. Everybody can continue to have whatever cameras they have. And okay. as you know, every bicyclist has got a GoPro on his helmet. Sure, and yeah. He walk through town as an iPhone. And that's all fine and well. What they can't do is say, hey, we've looked through all of the facial recognition data, and we know everywhere, Joan Smith, that you have walked in the last 72 hours. Gotcha. We can track you now. We don't want to track you, but we can. Well, that's been banned. Uh, just saying, hey, I got a camera outside my shop. It caught what happened when that ATM got knocked over. That's fine. That hasn't changed. Okay. It's the technology, the potential technology that we're worried about. I was just wondering how extreme or how extensive the ban was. Back to the protests, if you don't mind, Mr. Hayes, for a minute or two more. Uh, is it because of the pause, because of the reduction in air quality to the point where the advisory here in Vancouver today from our Environment Canada is stay indoors, particularly if you have any immunocompromised conditions, respiratory right. issues, do not go outside. Don't Do yourself a favor and stay indoors. So under advisories and circumstances like that, if they, if they stay in place for a little longer, could that literally take the air out of the protest tires completely? It might, but here's the thing to know. There are two levels of protest in Portland. There are the righteously angry, and they number in the thousands, who are concerned about the this year, this decade, this century's systemic racism that is part and parcel of the American experience. Mm -hmm. They're not going to be un, uh, dissuaded from, from protesting. When the weather gets good again, they're going to be They'll showing be back up out. council meetings. Okay. They're going to be... Yeah. But, um, but the... The looter, the person who wants to go out and do arson in the middle of the night, uh, and who, by the way, as far as we're concerned, we're doing it because that was kind of fun and cool and you could get onto YouTube. Yeah. That group, I think, is going to dissipate because there's been such a backlash. They're clearly not good allies of the Black Lives Movement. They are 
pernicious advocates of mischief. That, we believe, is, is dissipating. Well, that's good news to hear, actually, and I'm, I'm pleased that uh, we were able to make uh, contact with you, uh, Dana, and uh, get an update. Uh, we share our, our air quality today, my friends, so I can tell you quite sincerely, stay indoors and uh, be very safe and careful with yourself. It's, it's tough breathing for you and for us up here in Vancouver. Thanks for this, Dana. We'll talk again. Always a pleasure. Dana Hayes is the managing editor of the Portland Tribune. Time for a Surrey update, and we go to Surrey City Council and speak with Linda Annis, who is joining us on the line. Linda, good morning. Good morning, Sterling. I have a few things on my list for you this morning. Let's start with the ward system. One of your fellow councillors, Doug Elford, has brought this up again. And as I mentioned a few moments ago, this is something that comes up every now and then at at Vancouver and other municipalities around uh, B.C. The ward system, Linda, where basically city council uh, represents like a provincial government or a federal government where the city is divided into wards or ridings and each Councillor represents that specific area of the city rather than the at-large approach that the city takes now. Uh, Councillor Elford is in favor of the ward system. You are on the record as being not in favor. So why? Well, for a couple of reasons. First of all and foremost, uh, under the current system, councillors are accountable to every resident in the city of Surrey, Mm -hmm. and every resident in the city of Surrey gets to vote for all councillors. Under the ward system, you would only vote for the councillor that is living in your neighbourhood. That's one reason. The other reason is, or other reasons I should say, is that with a city that's growing as quickly as Surrey, we need to be taking a broader perspective when it comes to our community priorities and how we're going to build our city and how we're going to uh, accommodate some fifteen to 18,000 people moving here each year. Another reason, too, for me is this new, if we went ahead with the ward system, is going to cost significantly more. And I'll just use Vancouver as an example. Okay. When they went through this review, they uh, looked at uh, how many more counselors they would need to have, right. and they would need to increase by almost 50%. That's significantly more administrative costs. And do the residents of Surrey really want to pay more for government? Well, now this uh, this motion to move to a ward system for electing representatives uh, will go to council uh, um, this week. I'm I'm assuming. What appetite do you sense around the table for this idea, Linda? Well, I don't think that many residents in Surrey want this. Uh, when I have first started speaking out about this, I've heard from many many people. What can we do to stop it? Uh, right now, it's going to council to ask staff to develop a corporate report as to whether or not we should or should not be going forward. So at a later date, council will actually vote to decide whether or not we have this ward system. But quite frankly, it's absolutely the wrong direction for Surrey to be going. Okay, now the next municipal election, of course, there's, it's not until 2022. So we're basically October 22. So we're two years away from the next election. So were, and this is hypothetical, Linda, were council, for example, to say, uh, to disagree with you and uh, agree with Councillor Elford and adopt this situation or adopt the ward solution, there would be a two-year implementation program or, or time period so that at least the voters would have a chance to get their heads around the change before the next election came. It wouldn't be, oh, here's a change and now you got to vote tomorrow. It wouldn't be anything like that, would it? 
No, it wouldn't be. But can you imagine under a ward system, you vote for your councillor in your community. That means basically the rest of the councillors aren't accountable to you. Mm -hmm. And I just think that that's fundamentally a huge problem. And it's also a problem if you're in a minority uh, situation, as we are right now, living in communities that are, or wards, I should say, that have a councillor that is in the opposition, your voices would not be heard. Uh, so that's uh, and that's uh, we, because we already have party politics at the municipal level. Certainly, the party that Mr. McCallum, the mayor, uh, represented in the last election uh, was elected very with a very strong majority. They've lost a couple of members since that election, but the parties at the municipal level have been a fact of life in BC for a while. Linda, is that a, a positive or a negative thing? It's it seems uh, at the municipal level, where of course government is closest to the people. It's sometimes a bit of a monster that gets in the way of getting things done. I think it all depends on the council that's in play. Many, many councils, and I'll go back to the days when Surrey first was in power. It represented such a wide array of perspectives and also political ideologies, and they got a lot of work done. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I really think it depends on who's on council and who's leading council. Okay, fair ball. Now, back to my list, because I have, in addition to the (laughs) ward system, I have the police survey. These are my notes, and as I understand it, the National Police Association conducted a survey amongst residents of Surrey with respect to the transitioning from the RCMP to the local, the new... uh, coming uh, Surrey police force. And as I understand the numbers, and Linda, you can clarify this for me, 58% of people surveyed were not in favor of moving to a Surrey police force. Flesh that out for us, please. I Absolutely. And I think even uh, more uh, reflective of that is what the current uh, petition that's going around Surrey that has more than 50,000 signatures on it now saying they don't want the RCMP to leave Surrey. And I think particularly right now, those that were maybe sitting on the fence are saying, hey, let's pause it during COVID, during the pandemic. This is not the time to be spending money on transition. Uh, the transition, by all accounts, is going to cost us at least $129.6 million. Should we be spending that kind of money and cutting city services to fund that? Absolutely not. Is this, uh, is this much ado about nothing, though, Linda, given the fact that the majority council uh, voted in favor of this? It was approved subsequently after much uh, official hoop jumping. It was approved by the government of British Columbia. Uh, they given the charter to the police uh, to go forward, to the city to go forward with it. So the horses left the barn, as and uh, all of the uh, hand-wringing and uh, expressions of regret are really um, futile, given the fact that the decision has been taken. You can't go back on that, or can you? Well, this is not entirely true. So, first of all, I would like to say that the whole process was not transparent. The residents didn't know what it meant to if they transitioned to a new police force or what it was going to cost. And as a resident of Surrey, I still, and a councillor, I still don't know what it's going to cost and what this policing model is going to look like. This is not the time to be doing it. Um, And to your point, uh, the horse has already left the barn. Absolutely not. They still have to recruit. They've got to find members. The RCMP just recently did an internal survey Mm -hmm. to see how many would transition over to the Surrey Police Department. And they did this 
for a couple of reasons. One was they needed to know how many members, if indeed this transition went through, that they would need to transition to other departments and other jurisdictions. 14% of the members said that uh, they would transition to over the Surrey RCMP. That's one four. That's surprising. That's not enough members. They're looking for over 800 members. So they've got to find the members. They've got to train the members. They've got to build the policing model. There's, they've got to figure out how to transition files. There's many, many steps that need to take place before this can um, actually happen. But first and foremost, the residents of Surrey deserve to know what is this policing model going to look like? How is it going to make them feel safer? And how much is it going to cost? I'm sure the powers that be were expecting a much higher uh, percentage of current serving Mounties than 14% who would plan to stay and uh, change uniforms into the new Surrey uh, Police uh, Department. Last item on my list this morning, Councillor Annis, banquet halls. Dr. Henry has closed them again, many of them, many of them in Surrey, and not all the owners of said banquet halls even slightly amused. What's your thoughts on banquet halls this weekend? Well, we have to get this pandemic under control. We're all in this together. We, if we can't manage ourselves to stay in small groups and follow the guidelines of Dr. Bonnie Henry, we need to take drastic action. And it's regrettable that people aren't listening the way that they should be to what she says so that we can move forward. We've got to get our numbers down on the pandemic. It's absolutely critical. We don't want to go into a lockdown again. We need to be able to get business going. We need to get our economy going and people back to work. So we need people to be on side. And uh, closing them all seemed a bit drastic. Handing out some stiff fines to the bad guys might have been a, a, an alternative possibility. What do you think of that? Well, I think that's a huge amount of manpower. People should not be thinking just of themselves. They Uh should be thinking about their community. I think the police officers and bylaw officers who are going out and having to deal with this have better things to be doing. They should be keeping us safe in our communities, not having to manage people's bad behavior. Councillor Linda Annis, we always appreciate your joining us. Thank you for this. Stay safe, okay? You too. It's time to take a look at the Vancouver Fringe Festival, which maybe are not aware of, is actually officially underway as of, what, three, four days ago now. It started off on the 10th, so we're still just, just getting there. And it's a pleasure to welcome the director, the executive director of the Vancouver Fringe Festival to the program this morning. Rohit Chokani is with us. Rohit, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Uh, great to be with you. And yes, our festival is underway and we're off to some really good sold out openings. Well, you've got an interesting story to tell. There's a bit of a backstory to this year's uh, <laughs> Fringe Festival because not only is it virtual and uh, we're going to talk about how it's going to be different this year from previous years, Rohit, but your story as the executive director is quite compelling because you took the assignment of uh, handling the Fringe Festival and then you went. Uh, you left the country and you went to India. And uh, did you end up getting locked down over there? Is that what happened? Yeah, I mean, I, I I was interviewing and I knew I was getting the job, but all the contractual details were not finalized. And my family still lived there. I was born and raised in India. So, yeah, I was stuck there uh, for like four or five months until I felt like, uh, we, until we were trying to figure out what to do with the festival. And uh, once we made that decision, then obviously uh, I had to wait till it became all safe and I felt safe to come back and uh, I was back on August 26th and uh, I'm safe and healthy and sound and uh, 
My first day out of quarantine was the opening of the festival. <laughs> I'll bet it was. Uh, the opening day of the festival was your first day out of quarantine. Well, there's timing for you, if nothing else. And so you had to do this all remotely. Now, that said, if you had to do it remotely, Rohit, what you certainly picked the right year to do it because pretty much everybody involved is doing pretty much everything remotely these days, aren't they? Yeah, I mean... The time zone was a bit of a of mind bender uh, in my particular situation because India is 12 and a half hours uh, ahead. So I was working nights and sleeping days, mm-hmm. which is a little weird. But uh, but yeah, it was it's a shift in work culture that everybody has had to adapt. And we were all, all of our teams were working around the clock in different time zones and uh, working from home. However, our festival is not virtual. Our festival is actually still doing live events. Oh. And it was uh, it was nice to see us come back to live events. And it was nice to see uh, humans, social distance, wearing masks, but uh, still enjoying live performances. Absolutely. Yeah. And that, that was my mistake because, indeed, it's not all virtual. Uh, and I was reading, at, uh, at the same time I was saying that, I was reading a piece on my screen that was saying many fringe festivals across Canada have been canceled altogether. Uh, so uh, and the fact that there was going to be any performance, virtual or otherwise, in Vancouver is already sort of bucking the trend. But yes, we have uh, a situation where whereby the edict is no more than a a gathering of of 50 individuals in any given time. So you've managed to trim the festival performances down to audiences of 50 people, correct? You got it, yeah. We we made sure that... uh uh, our performances have a maximum capacity of 50 patrons. Uh, some of our performances, like the outdoor ones, have uh, even further reduced capacity. Like uh, the show that sold out this weekend is uh, only 30 folks. So it really depends on where we're doing it and what the venue is. But regardless of that, uh, we will never go about the requirement of 50 patrons. Sure. Uh, and we are also offering a few things here and there virtually. Yeah. Okay, so you know, so there is definitely a virtual component to this. I was aware of it. Rohit, what is your background? Uh, you said that you had interviewed for the job before leaving for India, pretty confident that you were going to get it. Is that because you've been involved with the Fringe Festival in previous years? Yeah, I mean, definitely. Like I've uh, Before the Fringe Festival, I was the artistic director of Diwali in BC. So festivals are not new to me, and sure. I've been involved with many different festivals. And also organizationally, I was the general manager at Urban Inc. Productions before and Touchstone Theater, so uh, so it's not my first rodeo, but yeah, with the Fringe, what was really interesting was that because I'm also an artist and I've directed and produced shows before, uh, I have done like three shows, which luckily have been uh, very successful on the Fringe circuit. Um, uh, my first show was in 2011. Also, I've been in, in, involved in a lot of uh, industry-wide as well as Fringe-wide initiatives as a community representative to uh, help us move forward on the equity, diversity, and inclusive initiatives. So, uh, yeah, I was very connected with the fringe, and I knew it. Uh, I think, I don't know whether that was the reason why I got the job, but definitely for me, I definitely had a good understanding of the festival, and I had seen it from different lenses, be it it as an artist, or be it as a community rep, or be volunteering at the festival. So Mm -hmm. I definitely had some different uh, opinions and views on, on proposing a vision for the festival. Uh, obviously, that vision has changed because now it's post-pandemic, but um, but when I was interviewing, I'm sure that uh, familiarity with the festival helped me. Yeah. Sure. Now, unlike previous festivals, uh, the 2020 uh, edition of the Vancouver Fringe Festival will only feature local artists, and this year's theme is a shift in perspective. 
What's that mean? I mean, what that means is a lot of things. I think because of the pandemic, uh, uh, we all as humans are shifting our perspective in terms of how we live and what we do and how we work. Our All of our lives have needed to be shifted. So there's that shift. Uh, as artists and uh, producers and event organizers, uh, how we create art and how we manage and create space for our patrons to feel a sense of collective energy uh, in our community while enjoying performances is also shifting. And the third thing is obviously our organization is shifting. One, because a, a major leadership position that is mine right. uh, has, has had a transition, but also we've had to shift the fringe. Like historically, the fringe is like a 10-day long festival mm-hmm. with over over 700 performances and like more than 90 artists uh, over the course of 10 days. So obviously, that's not possible in a pandemic. So what we've done, like you rightly identified, that uh, because it's we don't recommend anybody traveling right now, uh, so and nor, uh, neither are our health and provincial authorities. Uh, they're recommending travel only if it's essential. So we are unfortunately being only able to do a local festival, which I like because we can support local artists. Sure. But what we don't like is that because our festival has also historically had a great engagement with out-of-province artists and international artists, so that's not happening. But we're still looking at other ways on what we could do with them in the future. But we've had to shift the fringe, and so instead what we're doing is only one venue or two venues on a given night and... Uh, and like just a few artists and we've chunked it down into small pieces but we're doing a fringe now and we're going to do it all the way till december so we have like 10 days of performances each month so the shift in the fringe is like we're staggering the event and we're doing like 10 days of live performances in september then in october then in november and maybe in december with some gap in between and so, the website is is where it's all happening vancouverfringe.com by the way friends uh, what are the venues rohit that uh, are going to be the most likely uh, most frequently used over the next few weeks of of the festival that's great. Uh, the first September uh, event is predominantly on the Granville Island. Okay. So our indoor venue is Performance Works. Okay. And right now in September, because the weather is still relatively okay, but the air quality is a little bit of a challenge sometimes. But uh, the outdoor venues are still on the Granville Island. One one of our show is at, uh, is at a yellow crane pad, which is like just opposite uh, Performance Works uh, near the parking lot. And then our another venue is uh, is behind our administrative office. Actually, uh, uh, it's called Picnic Pavilion. It's uh, right behind where uh, the Cat's Social House restaurants used to be. Oh, okay, all right. So uh, Granville Island is uh, is ground zero for the Fringe Festival for the first component, and all of the information about who's playing, when, and where is available at VancouverFringe.com. It's the thirty seventh annual Vancouver Fringe Festival, and its executive director this year is Rohit Trakani. Uh, finally, back home in Canada. Finally quarantined. <laughs> finally able to go to a show. <laughs> Timing is everything, Rohit. Thanks very much for this. And we wish you considerable success for this 2020 edition of the Vancouver Fringe. Thanks so much. Nice chatting and uh, stay safe. And if you feel uh, excited about coming back to live performance, then we look forward to seeing you all. Absolutely.
We were talking Fringe Festival with the new executive director just before we took the break. And now we're going to stay on that theme for just a little bit and talk to one of the performers. And it's a real treat to welcome Richard Lett to the program. Richard is a veteran stand-up comic. He's worked with people like Chris Rock, Dave Chappelle, Tommy Chong, Janine Garofalo, Zach Galifianakis, and Robin Williams, to name but a few. What a name dropper that is. Uh, Also a a writer uh, and a slam poet who works under the name... Optimus Rhyme. Richard Lett, good morning and welcome to the show. Hey, Sterling, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you with us. And why don't we start on a, a slightly serious note, if you don't mind, Richard. Uh, and uh, our movie guy, uh, an hour or two ago, uh, reviewed the new documentary called Robin's Wish. You've worked with Robin Williams in the past. Have you seen the documentary at all? And, and were you as surprised as the rest of us uh, at his untimely demise? I uh, have not seen the documentary. I know um, Robin from his uh, issues with addiction, Mm -hmm. uh, as well as comedy. Um, And so I've been in recovery from addiction myself. Um, I would say that I was shocked, but not surprised. Sadly, we lose um, an awful lot of people to that. Uh, strange and dangerous lethal disease of addiction. And so um, that's, I don't know what the documentary is about, but that was my experience is that um, we're all sort of hanging from a thread in that regard. Well, exactly. And and, and basically the, the, uh, the documentary was done because of what, what killed him. And he didn't know, and no one knew until the autopsy was done. He had Lewy body dementia and he knew something was terribly, terribly wrong. No one provided him with an accurate diagnosis uh, and thus uh, it, it, everything ended the way it did tragically. Uh, Richard, you are a stand-up comedian and performer and a slam poet and all the rest of it. Uh, and during these COVID times, like most performers uh, across the country, you haven't been able to go work the clubs. You haven't been able to do your sober but never clean show in nightclubs, for example, or uh, get out there and with the CD living clean and talking dirty. You haven't been able to do that stuff. So what have, you been, what have you been doing with yourself all of these months? Well, um, I'm a film actor, so uh, acting is something that you can study with Mm-hmm. So I've been doing a lot of uh, classes like that. I've been studying uh, or doing scene study with a guy and my partners in Perth, Australia. So there's a, a remarkable, you know, thing you can do because of this online, you know, capability that has come to the fore. It wouldn't have been if not for the lockdown. Right? Sure. People wouldn't have bothered to go online and try and do this stuff that would with, you know, it being the only thing you could do it, uh, you know, people got into it and just become quite effective. I have done some writing. I mean, of course, I've been involved with the fringe and the attempt of the fringe to not cancel. Right. You know, everything was just dropping. You know, I was in a movie uh, called All Joking Aside, and I was in San Jose for the red carpet world premiere of this thing on, you know, the March, the first week of March, and when I was there, you know, um, John Onroy, the producer, you know, <laughs> let me know because, you know, we got to the festival and then it was canceled. You know, two days later, they said this thing is, you know, shutting down. Mm-hmm. And then we had to head back to Canada, and that was when Riverdale and all sorts of other productions, you know, <laughs> well, Riverdale was shut down, and then John said, they're all going. 
And I just went, what? He goes, yeah, this, uh, you know, because he sort of had his finger on the pulse. And so, you know, that was that, you know, um, moment that we all went through March 13th, Friday the 13th. Yeah. And all of a sudden it was just, you know, everything was shutting down mm-hmm. and uh, and we all had to face it. So that was, you know, I, I, I think I did a show March 16th, um, that following Monday. And that was the last time I've done a show till this Tuesday when I do another one. So, um, you know, um, the Fringe uh, didn't give up. Uh, the Vancouver Fringe is the last of the, on the Fringe calendar, you know, the Fringe runs from one end of the country to the other. Correct, yeah. And and Vancouver uh, actually followed Victoria in that calendar year. So it was the last one. So it was the one that had the best chance of still being alive festival mm-hmm. and so they didn't give up even though the executive director was in india at the time right and they, did, and they kept meeting they kept talking they kept sending us out you know questionnaires and what we wanted to do and what we thought would work and god love them they're you know we're doing it um you know it's it's going to be a little bit odd but uh you know the social distancing but it's a wonderful venue the uh uh, performance works on Grand Island. Island, yeah, and and the times that I've got seven thirty at night for you know from Tuesday to Saturday and then five p.m. on Sunday is is brilliant. You couldn't pick better times. So you know, um, it's you know just sort of one of those things where you go, okay, well, you know. If they're not going to give up on me, then I'm not going to give up on them. Well, good point. Yeah, because Winnipeg had canceled, Saskatoon had canceled, it's Fringe Festival, so you are sort of expecting the domino effect to take out Vancouver, and that just didn't happen. So when do you fly into town? Oh, I live here. Okay. Yeah, so I'm not flying anywhere. I'll be taking a Evo down to Grand Island (laughs) through the nuclear winter that's going on out there. Oh, no kidding. Um, yeah, so um, I think we were all just a little like, oh, well, I guess the sun's gone now, too. <laughs> you know, and, and but we are dealing uh, people, you know, serving during this uh, pandemic or whatever, during, um, I actually tested positive for COVID. Oh, okay. Uh, in July, in early July, I um, got uh, not feeling good and, um, did all the sort of protocol as far as going on the website and signing in and or you know answering all their questions. Mm-hmm. My girlfriend said, "I think we should take this seriously." And then I called the number and they asked a bunch more questions. And then they said, "Everything you should go have a test." And so the next morning, I went down to Hornby and and uh, Drake and had that uh, brain tickler test and um, and then. Um, Thought I was fine, and then 25 hours later, they phoned me and said that I tested positive, and that um, then it became a rather intense, you know, 10 days uh, of the BC Environmental, you know, Health Agency phoning me Mm -hmm. every day and checking in on me, and, you know, it was pretty impressive, actually, Sterling, how good and uh, these people were about it all and being on top of it. They were very... uh, smart and efficient about it. And so um, it is, you know, so then when I decided that I was going to do the Fringe Festival, um, because the show that I'd planned to do didn't involve COVID, right? You know, we 
you know, when you applied to the festival, it was like late last year. So change of plan coming. Yeah, I changed plan and <laughs> ran into my uh, comedian friend of mine and said, "You should do a show called Hard to Kill," because uh, he was regaling his friend with all the stuff I've gone through, addiction and cancer, and now COVID. And so that's exactly what I did. So Hard my to show, kill. Hard to kill. All right. Richard, let, um, I, I've got to leave it there because I'm out of time and I need time to remind people that you will be at Performance Works as part of the Vancouver Fringe Festival from Tuesday through Saturday this week at 7.30 each night with Hard to Kill on stage. Yes. Thanks, Richard. We appreciate it. Uh, break a leg out there, will you? Thank you, Sterling. And, uh, you know, keep safe. Shall do. You too. Diane Francis is joining us next. Diane is a distinguished professor at the Ted Rogers School of Management at Ryerson University, best known to Canadians over the last 20 years for her smoking hot columns in the National Post and Financial Post newspapers. Always a real treat to have her on the program. And we should let you know, friends, right from the beginning of the conversation, the lines are wide open. 604-280-9898. Diane Francis, Good morning and welcome back. Thank you very much. Good to be here. It's good to have you with us. I need to quote a line from uh, a very recent column, and this is what we want to talk about mostly this morning. Perhaps the greatest hazard to democracy is its dependence on easily sabotaged 19th century technologies such as paper ballots, mail-in ballots, or requirements for in-person voting. Your point is digital democracy is within our within our graphs. What the heck is wrong with this? Why haven't we done it already? What's the answer to that one, Diane? Well, the answer to that is that uh, it's it's first of all it's very expensive and it's very tricky. And I don't think we have technologically savvy politicians in Canada or in most countries. Uh, as I point out in the article, there's only one country, and it's a small country, but it's five million people, Estonia, who's completely digitized their government. Right. In other words, I can get a driver's license, a birth certificate, a marriage certificate, a death certificate. I can vote. I can get welfare. I can do everything because when I'm born or every citizen and resident of the country has an ID with a code and no one else can, you know, it's encrypted. And so it's quite safe to interact digitally, and that's what they're doing. Now, this came out of necessity. It's important to point out Estonia is a tiny little place, but it's right next door to Russia. And this whole encryption uh, technology, this whole desire for uh, security came as a direct result of being e so easily crushed by Russia, correct? Yeah, Russia cyber attacked the country in 2005 and a couple of other times and took down their entire electrical grid. Um, I mean, it was devastating. Uh, and they, they could just, you know, just prey on that little place digitally. And so they decided to not only build security systems to prevent that kind of mass hacking and cyber attacks, but they also decided to also protect all of their government transactions and citizen transactions with governments by completely digitizing. Uh, other countries in that region who have suffered from cyber attacks from Russia, mm -hmm. namely Ukraine and Poland and Latvia and Lithuania, 
have more digital democracy than we do by a long shot for very much the same reason. So again, necessity being the mother of invention in those particular countries in that geographical part of the world. So we don't have that threat on our doorstep, we don't think, but then we always forget about the back door and how close Russia is to that, Diane, let alone, I mean, that physical proximity is a reality in Canada, despite the fact that few Canadians ever consider it. No, we are we are definitely uh, being hacked. We are definitely. If you ask a a security expert who deals with corporations and governments, you will see that hackers are bombarding our government websites, mm-hmm. our corporations, and sometimes creating huge costs and damage and stealing intellectual property every day of the week, every minute of the day. And so this is going on in Canada. This is going on around the world, and sometimes it's from state governments that are doing the attacking, mostly China and Russia, but the Iranians are doing it, the North Koreans are doing it. I mean, the famous North Korea hack of a Hollywood movie studio where everybody's salaries were exposed and those kinds of frivolous things, Mm -hmm. but also our elections have been hacked and certainly our social media has been, uh, I think, bombarded with fake news and racist posts, hate posts, um, anti-oil and gas posts, particularly Canada. We've been the target of a campaign by Russia, uh, Venezuela, and Iran uh, against our oil and gas industry. Mm -hmm. A huge bombardment in elections, and it certainly, I'm sure, I think it affected the B.C. outcome in your provincial election, and it's it's pretty pervasive throughout Canada. So back to the, the notion of uh, digital voting, and let's get to, to the Estonian model, because in practical terms, Diane, we're, so let's, uh, Trudeau, is uh, he's going to reset here. We're going to build back better, whatever on earth that means, beyond another $100 billion in debt, for sure. Uh, but they are going to do some kind of reset. He's uh, made overtures in the past towards some kind of electoral reform, none of which has been adopted or even considered. But might this be included in some kind of reset? And if it were, how would Elections Canada go about digitizing us? Look, don't don't count on anything from the Trudeau cabinet. I think it is the most inept in terms of uh, science and technology cabinet, maybe in Canadian history. There's not one person with a science background uh, in the the Trudeau cabinet. There's not one person who's a technology-savvy person. Uh, They're mostly activists and and Liberal Party hacks that are in that and people that are way over their heads. They don't understand business and anything else like that as well, or economics. So don't expect anything except their own uh, aptitude at trotting out their little pet pet ideal ideologies right. such as the green thing mm-hmm. and you know whatever else they trot out diversity me too black lives matter i mean whatever slogan that they want to capture to buy votes from people they will be doing and that's what's going to be uh, the grab bag that's going to be in there they have no vision they have no strategic vision we don't have a prime minister who is geopolitically or technologically savvy that's the tragedy so in terms of the implementation of a digital voting system in canada that would be left to the independent elections canada department to take care of assuming they got the green light or thumbs up from parliament right 
Yeah, I don't see it as a priority. There's not a perception. One of the reasons I wrote the article was to alert uh, Canadians to the fact that, you know, nobody's immune from this kind of predatory behavior by Russia, China, and other players. Yep. I mean, I even include the, the radical environmentalists who, who want to shut down our most important industry, oil and gas, for no reason other than to cause mischief to us uh, as a nation. Uh, and and they, they go to great lengths to stir up trouble all over the place. Diane Francis is back with us on the program today, editor-at-large with the National Post and Financial Post. Here's a, a, another quote from the most recent article. Tampering is a way of life in banana republics, and it's what supporters of U.S. President Trump are openly saying they intend to do in November. The question is, why would the world's most technologically advanced nation not already have put in place a foolproof electronic voting system that could be used remotely on PCs or smartphones and made available to each and every eligible citizen. And the answer to that one, Diane, as you uh, pointed out earlier, has a lot to do with money. They don't want to spend the money to get it done. Is that the only reason? It's the money. It also uh, suits their purposes. If you see uh, the the electoral, uh, apart from federal elections, but even in the federal elections, the the state, the fifty states, and and the territories uh, run their own electoral system. Yes, and it's a patchwork quilt of regulation. So in some areas, you need a photo ID and lots of onerous documentation to be able to vote, which is a, a, a ability to suppress the votes of less educated people in remote areas. And so there's a lot of nonsense that's going on. Registration is also very onerous in certain states mm-hmm. where they don't want people to vote. And, and that sort of stuff is going on. So it's easy to game the system there. And if you had digital democracy, you wouldn't be able to game the system. So, you know, just answer the question yourself. There's so many people that want to game the system. Why would they have digital democracy? So it's kind of a rhetorical question. The Americans could have had digital democracy before anybody else. Sure. But they don't. And they're not even organized anyway. Let's face it. There's 50 states, and they all operate like separate countries. Do you think there's more of an appetite for said digital democracy here in Canada than there is this morning in the States, Diane? Well, no, I don't think so either. I don't think there's necessarily any any groundswell anywhere. I just think that the question should be raised everywhere constantly because we eventually all will get to that. That That is going to be what's happened. But, mm-hmm. you know, in places like France and Britain, I mean, they had, you know, major important history-making elections affected by Russian intervention. Yes. Not only, not necessarily hacking into the electoral system itself, but certainly unfairly and wrongly influencing through social media the Brexit referendum, lots of evidence of that, as well as the French election, where the Russians completely backed um, the neo-Nazi Marie Le Pen against Macron. So, you know, this is this is the issue that there's an influence issue as well as a a um, a an, a ballot casting issue. Now, I think Canada does a much better job electorally than the U.S. already. Agreed. And that is by virtue of the fact that everybody is given 
notification and is automatically entitled to vote. All you have to do is show up to the polling station and vote. I guess there's a mail-in option and an absentee option. I've never used either. Okay. But it's very, the polls are available, they're clean, they're well-manned, you get plenty of notice, you can vote ahead of time. You know, it's all very well done, and as a result, the per- percentage of Canadians that actually turn out to vote is much higher than it is in the United States. Yes. Where if you just move houses two blocks, you may have to re-register all over again. It's very complicated down there. So the idea, and of course the other uh, capability that we have here, as you pointed out in the American example, there are 50 ways of voting in the United States here, and that's on a, that's for the, the presidential election, too. Here in Canada, there's one one way and there's elections canada and and if you do something by way of making changes it happens right across the board right across the country that's right and so i think it's much better organized here the australians are also well organized they actually tax you if you don't vote Mm -hmm. that's interesting and uh, I'm wondering, we had Alan Lickman on the program here a couple of weeks ago. He, of course, has been successful in predicting the winner of presidential races since uh, Ronald Reagan back in the 80s. Uh, and uh, he uh, talked about his 13 keys and uh, indicated his uh, prediction as uh, for uh, Donald Trump to lose this uh, particular uh, uh, election. And, Diane, what I'm going to uh, with this is the speculation the rampant speculation that were the election to, to be close and Trump to lose, there might be a difficulty getting him out of the White House. Well, that's a different issue, but let me raise something else. Uh, you know, all this controversy and uh, all these, this, these lies that he's spreading about, you know, mail, mail-in ballots, and if you mail-in, show up to and vote twice. Yeah, yeah. And That's a felony. And shouldn't be fraudulent, and if I lose, they will have cheated. He's setting us up for something that's very, very serious, and that is going to be um, the night of the election, there won't be... Uh, the, the night of the election, the, the forecast by the networks is based on ballots that were actually, you know, personally made at polling stations, Correct, physical yeah. balloting yep. at polling stations. They declare winners and so on. They are not going to do that this year because of the pandemic. There's going to be so many mail-in ballots because people just don't want to go out sure. to a polling station. There's also concern about violence and intimidation. And so the mail-in ballots may represent 40% of the total vote, and they won't be counted Immediately, they, it'll take four or five more days for sure. those results to be in. So election night, it may, and, and the other thing that's interesting is that Democrats will, more Democrats will mail in than Republicans. The Republicans are going to show up. So what you may have happen is the actual day of the night of the voting, the Republicans may show that they've won the vote, but five days later, the mail-in ballots will show that the Democrats won. Mm-hmm. That period in between will be extremely unsettling to stock markets, to people, and will allow Trump to campaign or make moves, perhaps, to prevent the rest of it from coming out. So we'll have a really, it won't be an election night, it'll be an election week. And I think we all have to be prepared for that, because he will do everything he can to stay in office. And final question. He is a ruthless 
man. Final question to you, and I'm sorry to interrupt there. Uh, I only have 30 seconds. What do you think about the possibility of a fall election here in Canada, Diane? I think it depends on what kind of a uh, uh, budget, uh, what the speech from the throne says on the 23rd of September. I think if it's, it's as shocking as some civil servants are leaking, it is. And I think, you know, then I think that it's, it's, it behooves the opposition parties to hold their noses and vote non-confidence and call an election. They don't want to, but I think that's their, their you know, if, if, this is, if this is a speech from the throne that's going to be overwhelmingly uh, damaging to the economy, uh, then they have to do it. And, you know, nobody wants an election a year later, but on the other hand, nobody wants this incompetent government. Interesting stuff. Diane, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you for including us in your weekend. I hope to talk again soon. Great. Thank you. Diane Bye-bye. Francis, uh, editor-at-large, The National Post. Mario Canseco is the big guy over at Research Company and wrote a piece recently on a sports saying, pandemic curbs behavior of sports fans in North America. The big question for Mario this morning is, how about our enthusiasm? Mario, good morning and welcome back. Good morning, Sterling. Great to be here. Well, it's ha- nice to have you with us. And I-, I left out a word to pandemic curbs buying behavior of sports fans in North America. Mario, you were able to notice a pretty dramatic drop-off in money spent by sports fans in both Canada and the United States. That's right. We saw three things that are definitely different in 2020 with the COVID-19 pandemic than how they used to be just a year ago. Uh, One of them has to do with whether you spend money going to a bar or a a, a pub to watch uh, sports. Right. Back in 2019, we had 23% of Americans and 18% of Canadians who say that they watched sports at a pub or a bar. Uh, Now it's down to 12% in the U.S. and 8% in Canada. So a 50% reduction when you think about it. And this is definitely something that is going to be difficult to to face uh, for those who have these venues where you can go watch the game. We saw a drop also in how many people are buying apparel from sports teams and also people who cancel the subscription uh, to a cable or satellite channel where they watch sports. So what is emerging here is a new relationship with sports right. after COVID-19. Uh, you can't go watch the games at the stadium, at least in most leagues. Um, you can't really go out or you're fearful about going out to watch the game at a specific venue and you're not spending a lot of money on uh, jerseys from the team. So definitely something that has changed over the past year. Yeah, they call it merch in the rock business, in the music business, <laughs> in, in the sports business. Anything that has a logo on it relating to, I don't know, the Blue Jays or U2 or whatever you're selling at your concert venue or in the souvenir stands, it's called merch. And people aren't buying merchandise. They're not buying team sweaters and jerseys at the rate that they used to. And that would suggest Mario, the simple reality of people not going to games and being as jazzed about the team as they have been in previous seasons, probably, right? Well, there is a couple of issues here that uh, definitely are uh, to blame for this. One is the economic situation, obviously, COVID-19 affecting a lot of households when it comes to how much money you're earning. Mm -hmm. So you may not have a lot of that disposable income to spend. Uh, But the other one is uh, that we also see a lot of doubt from fans of sports, particularly when the leagues decided to do things differently. You know, we have a lot of purists from Major League Baseball who say this isn't the season. It has to be 162 games. I don't like this. A lot of NHL hockey fans who maybe said I'm not really comfortable with the way the Stanley Cup is going right now. 
Um, the NFL doesn't have to face this because, oddly enough, this isn't something that affected their season as it was about to be played. So they had a chance to essentially do the same thing that they always do, even though we didn't have any any games uh, before today. Yeah, no preseason um, games this year, but that's exactly. uh, so far. But the schedule kicks in as as was anticipated uh, today. Yeah, it's been it's been interesting, and I think what we see here also is. Uh, the fact that the NFL and Major League Baseball are definitely the most popular leagues in the United States, the NBA climbing, of course, but it's ultimately about the revenue from the television. Sure. And I think that's one of the reasons for the CFL to say we're going to cancel our season. You get a lot of that revenue from the ticket sales. It's not the same situation that we see with, with the NFL or with Major League Baseball where it amounts to less than 20% of your entire revenue from the ticket sales. Uh, it's definitely more, especially in a market like Saskatchewan, for instance, where it's almost 50% of the money they make sure. through ticket sales. Interesting stuff. And and you're right. The CFL business model is very different from the uh, NFLs because they are, are the Canadian uh, League is so much more reliant on actual fans in the stands. And the NFL, that's gravy. They make their big bucks from television broadcasts. Back to the bars, if you don't mind for a second, Mr. Canseco. We were there hoping we, we were hoping when the hockey season, this is a Canadian ang- angle to your story, we were hoping that when the hockey season limited Limited though it is, and uh, structured as it has been. Once that got up and underway, I had some conversations with people like Ian Tostenson and others in the hospitality industry saying that they were hoping that the return of hockey, particularly in Canada, uh, and the loosening to some degree of the lockdown regulations would have given some spark, some degree of life to sports bars and and those sorts and pubs uh, where people typically congregate to enjoy sports together. But your numbers are saying that no matter how hard these places are trying to comply with the guidelines and the regulations, people are still lacking, I guess, confidence to go out and, and hang out there. Isn't, is that your finding? That is definitely part of it. You know, we've been asking questions about whether people are comfortable going out, uh, whether they would go back to a restaurant. And we see a lot of Canadians embracing uh, the concept of somebody bringing food to your home sure. or maybe not going out as much. Uh, there are other areas of the economy that have benefited from the lockdown not being the way it used to be. Uh, but I think what we see here also is uh, the fact that the teams are doing well. And, and, you know, we were expecting something similar. And you're looking into a situation like the Raptors who made it all the way to the semifinals in the NBA playoffs. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't see that spark. We didn't see that jump in Ontario when it came to that. If anything, we saw a lot of people who were celebrating from their uh, vehicles. Sure. You know, they had this humongous parking lot, uh, which they used to turn it into Jurassic Park. I guess they could call it Jurassic Parking Lot. That's right. Uh, very complex situation because you know you do want to celebrate you want to show people that you're there for the team uh, but it's going to take a long time for something like this to happen you know when we've asked canadians when we've asked british colombians about how they feel about life we still see a lot of people who say i'm not doing a lot of stuff until there's a vaccine and that includes going to the pub going to the gym so we still have a few months to go before we can go back to the way things were. No question about it. The Vancouver Whitecaps home to Montreal tonight at BC Place, Mario. And there won't be anyone there. No Southsiders, no Rowdies, no noise. And the players and the, and the players and the coaches will be the first to tell you it's just not even close to being the same. Very quickly, only got 30 seconds left. Uh, the Any reaction, any surveying of fans' reactions to demonstrations by players before games, that seems to be a coming thing 
Yeah, that was important for us. And uh, I was happy to see that the numbers are the same in Canada and in the United States. 64% of respondents in both countries saying that professional athletes should speak their mind if they are concerned about social and political issues. We saw what happened when the WNBA decided to do something about this. The NBA followed suit, the NHL as well. We saw a little bit in the Major League Baseball as well. And of course, everything started with the NFL with Colin Kaepernick kneeling down before the national anthem. So we have a majority of residents in the two countries who say athletes can say what they want to, particularly in a year like this one with an election in the United States coming up in less than two months. Mario, thank you for this. Enjoy the Seahawks game in a few minutes. Uh, Lovely to talk to you again, and we shall uh, continue our conversation in the weeks ahead. Thanks for this this morning. Thank you, Sterling. Research company, researchco.ca for that story and all the good work Mario and his team do at Research Company. That's it for us. Thanks to Julie Wong for a wonderful ride and Andrew Ferreira for putting it all together. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next weekend right here on NW.